Welcome back to the Nick Finzer Audio Experience. This is Nick, and today we are looking at an old Q&A session, Ask Nick. And uh, you should know that the Ask Nick series is back on the first Thursday of each month uh, on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook, live streaming at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And so we'll be looking at that. So that starts on September the 1st and extends all the way through December on that first Thursday of each month. Uh, if you want to get in there and ask your own question, uh, and we will, of course, be posting some of that here on the audio experience. But in today's episode of Ask Nick, there's some great questions, and uh, I hope they'll be useful to you in your career building activities. Uh, so this includes some info about what I learned from my Juilliard audition, how to fix a bad gig, and some thoughts about getting booked and like how to get yourself out there, how to get yourself uh, your first couple of gigs uh, for your group and for yourself. So I hope that it's helpful. Leave us a comment. Uh, leave us a rating if you care to. Uh, it's always helpful on these podcast services to get some to get some stars, man. So uh, leave us a rating, and we'll catch you back here real soon. Uh, everyone is having a great Friday. Uh, I just launched a new video on YouTube. After, if you want to go check that out, it's a video um, of one of my favorite Curtis Fuller tunes. Of course, Curtis passed away. Uh, of course, he's been a huge influence on me and many, 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 many other people. I venture to say probably every single uh, trombonist, jazz trombonist, for sure. One of my favorite tunes of his is called The Court. So I did that this week and I just um, posted it up on YouTube. So if you want to check that out later or right now or whatever you want to do, I had a lot of fun making that. Yeah, just a great reminder, you know, he, you know, said in a masterclass at Juilliard when I was there, we were talking about, you know, what would you do differently? And, you know, the thing that he brought up was that he would have... Um, written more compositions because those are what last beyond your lifetime and so i think it's important uh at least now for me to keep that in mind and try to keep curtis's tunes alive and all of that sort of thing so at any rate uh i'll be doing that and hopefully others will be doing the same i'm sure they will i don't think we're gonna get too far without curtis's influence permeating forever so if you are interested in the jazz Ramon boot camp um, we're filling up fast especially for the master class participant level uh, everyone's, of course, going to come to the master class, but only a few people are going to have reserved slots to be able to play. So if you want to be one of those people, make sure you sign up for the boot camp sooner rather than later. And make sure you sign up for the end of the month. The, the early bird pricing is going to end at the beginning of June. So by the end of the month, end of May, May 2021, make sure you get signed up for the boot camp if you want to be there. DJ, who's on the call, is going to be teaching as well as Jack Courtright. We've got Vince Gardner. We've got Andre Hayward. We've got Steve Davis. We've got Michael Davis. And we're just working out uh, which particular days they'll be um, hanging out with us. But all be June 14th to 18th. So go ahead. I know on Facebook and YouTube, you can go down below and click the links. Otherwise, we're going to get right into the Q&A here. How do you get booked for festivals? Do you apply or are you booked? There are festivals you can apply to. Generally speaking, a festival is booked by promoters that talk to booking agents. There's often routing configurations where they try to book all the festivals with uh, similar groups so that they save on travel costs. But like, you know, so some big festival like Monterey, for example, is going to just do whatever they want. And that's kind of a standalone event. It's not really a situation where you're going to get someone reaching out to you out of the blue you know it's definitely going to be a situation where you've been building up your reputation enough to be kind of on the radar of the people that book the festival you can obviously pitch them 
but to think you have to you're not just going to get an opportunity out of the blue you got to think about like a trajectory to like you're working with certain other people and those certain other people maybe you played as a side person at the festival with these people and then you know kind of slowly build it up but you got to start somewhere and you do have to pitch at the beginning 100 percent. and i'm still pitching myself if you guys know erica von kleist who's a great alto saxophonist flautist uh who was in New York, was a Juilliard person, played with Winton and just Jesling and Center Band. Now she lives out in Montana. But she was she posted yesterday about the lack of um, diversity in the Blue Note Jazz Festival's lineup for this year and um, was talking about the fact that she's still pitching herself too. And I would consider her someone that doesn't need to pitch, but she says she does have to do it too. So that you have to um, basically just get enough awareness that people want to book you on a festival what are my some of my favorite favorite curtis fuller tunes so i like um the one that i posted today court the court is a good one it's a la mode is a great one i love this isn't his tune but he plays but beautiful beautifully of course some of the stuff he brought for the messengers the maze is a good one his version not not to be confused with herbie hancock's similarly titled the composition Curtis always make it writes these kind of e- simple kind of tunes. There's like Ladies' Night and what's that? The Breeze and I. There's like a bunch. Do you think jazz trombone is at an inherent disadvantage economically compared to? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean disadvantage economically compared to. You just mean like in terms of the ability to be hired. I think that that's a double-edged sword because trombone has a lot of ability to be hired as a side person, in terms of like ensembles. Okay, so like a saxophonist they can like work as a solo saxophonist or like with a DJ, but then like we can also do brass quintet gigs and we can do brass ensembles and brass bands and like saxophone is not maybe as much involved there. So like I wouldn't, I don't really think about it that way. It's like saxophone has its role, trumpet has its role, trombone has its role and obviously they can cross over, but like as to be employed, like if you can get, especially get into like, like you might think like in an American wedding band the trombone might be for the first horn cut, but if you go to, say, salsa music, for example, the trombone is like essential, and they're not going to cut it. They'll at least have one trombone, one trumpet. So just know that, like, if you can diversify what sort of musical skills you have, what sort of musical um, situations that you can perform in, you know, there are actually more opportunities for trombone than for saxophone. But if you want to play smooth jazz, you might want to play saxophone. You know, any tips of improving the combination of tongue and rhythm? Yeah. So you, I think about it like your tongue is like a drumstick. This is what Steve Trey says, and I'm gonna just steal it and say it again. Your tongue is like a drumstick, and so your articulation is your rhythm. So the cleaner your articulation is on the trombone, the cleaner your rhythm is. The more clear your rhythm is, the cl- more clarity with which you can play and communicate. So um, it's a matter of just being extremely clear with your articulation. That's the step one, like making a clear articulation, and then you can practice putting it into time and then manipulating it within the time. All of those things kind of happen in steps. But without the clarity first, you have no hope of being able to communicate rhythmically. The first thing I always work on is the clarity of the articulation. That means the note has to have a nice front to it, a nice body, and a nice release, separation. If you could go back and fix one gig you played that went terribly, what would you fix? I don't know, I probably erased that gig from my mind. The only times that like stick out in my mind that are really like embarrassing or terribly would be like on a Broadway show, like stepping in a huge hole or playing a cue loud and wrong. Like that's a really embarrassing moment uh, that those stand out to me more than like on a gig, like playing some wrong notes or something.
just that, like the, thinking that this was the cue, but that was the cue for the rhythm section and this was your cue. Uh, what are questions you wish your trombone students or students in jazz studies would ask more? What do you think they don't ask enough of? Like the best thing you can do with a teacher is be really passionate about stuff and bring it into your lessons and like be like, I am so curious about this thing. Can we talk about this and like be learning things on your own? And like it gets so much in the in the niche of like, I'm gonna do exactly what my teacher says and like go down this path. But like, it's not as effective as like doing everything they say and showing what you're interested in. Like you have to show what you're interested in, you know, like whether it's harmony or comp composition or reharmonization or ranging or another player that they are checking out that I don't check out or something modern be like, man, how do I do this? Like, how do I do this? How do I like finding stuff that we can work on together is something that doesn't happen that often. And it definitely doesn't happen that often that the student will bring in extra stuff, you know, like, oh, I'm working on this. Like, yes, I'm going to assign you stuff because like we're having lessons. But at the same time, like you got to take it on to your own, take it on your own and like go beyond. Say like, oh, I'm working on this. Can we talk about this today? Like it's both. And so I think that a lot of students don't, it's not really a question, but it's more of like they what they don't do is have stuff that they're working on. That's like for them. Could you name two teachers you've had and one aspect of trombone trombone playing that's stuck with you from each teacher? Well, the two things that come to mind right away, I'm sure there's definitely more than this. I said this just a second ago, is that your tongue is like a drumstick, right? That's from Steve Turay. And you talk about that in terms of articulation and rhythm and intensity of rhythm. That sticks out in my mind as a, as a thing that I used a lot. From my teacher at Eastman, my, Mark Kellogg, he always used to talk about playing in tune with yourself, I, that I needed to do a better job of playing in tune with myself. So, and I, it took me a while to realize what he meant, but like our pitch center tends to move around uh, if we're playing unaccompanied. So playing in tune with yourself, that's one that I have taken a long way. He used to say something to the effect of, I don't mean to be the pitch police, but you really need to play D in first position in the, the same intonation as D in fourth position or some other example, you know? Like a great example of this is if you're playing like the beginning of the Bach cello suite, right? You play a low G and then you play some other notes and then you got to return to the G and you got to play that G the same, right? Like the same intonation has to be for the first G and the second G that's like a couple notes later. So that's playing a tune with yourself. And then the third, I got a bonus tip for you. So the third thing, this one from Wycliffe Gordon, and this isn't something he said, but something he never said. And that was, he would often never explain exactly what he was doing. And for a long time, I felt like that was like a, not a weakness, but it was like a neg, I thought it was a negative thing. But it turned, but as the older I've gotten and more I've taught, the more I realize how important it is to do that and kind of set up a situation where the student has to figure it out on their own and create that cognitive dissonance between like, well, you do it like this and then you show them and maybe you can give them a couple pointers, but like really they got to go and get it, right? So I took that away from my time working with Wycliffe, which was, you know, it was a long time ago now, but it still sticks with me. So there's three. Speaking of Steve Trey, did he teach Daga Daga Tongue or Daddle Tongue? Steve Trey does not doodle tongue. He will tell you loud and clear. I believe the words were doodle tonguing is the inferior technique. He definitely, he's a double tonguer. Daga 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 da. Just check out his tune. Um, if you want to hear a very clear example, you can check out um, Blackfoot. It's a contrafact on Cherokee. 
which is what I kind of do. I kind of take a hybrid approach, kind of like I've talked about this on the channel before, but um, like Marshall does, Marshall Jilks, kind of thinking about how you would say the rhythm, whether it's or a combination of right? It's a kind of a combination of doodle and double. So that's what I do. I don't really doodle, doodle tongue only when it happens uh, naturally, but it's not clean enough for me. So I want it to be clean, whatever that means it has to be. This may be an open-ended question, but what has helped you boost your sight reading over the years? Reading transcriptions, etudes, big bands, what has helped you to the most? Um, what has helped me the most is the desire to be a perfect sight reader. Um, rather than what it is you're sight reading, it's the desire to want to be a perfect sight reader. And so that means sight reading a lot and holding yourself to the standard and expectation that you're going to sight read it right the first time. So we made, a, made it up in my mind at some point that if I wanted to work in New York, I needed to be a perfect sight reader. I could not play it wrong the first time. Turns out you can probably be fine by playing it wrong. You know, not all the time wrong, but like, a you know, a couple of mistakes is not a big deal. But I want to get a 95 or above. There's kind of a couple schools to approaching sight reading. One is the volume approach, right, which you just described. Reading big band charts, small group charts, transcriptions, etudes, blah, 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 blah duets, etc. So I try to do duets with my students. Something that's important, something that Mark always did with me was always play duets, always hold me to a standard like, no, we're not going to move on until you play that darn thing right because that relates to the next thing. So every time you sight read something, you're absorbing that rhythmic information and that harmonic information into a pattern that you might be able to recognize again later. I, that's how I view it. Like it's pattern recognition. It's developing that ability to recognize patterns and to be able to actually see it again, you know, in the future. What are some tips for staying mentally and physically fresh during long recording sessions? Jackson, you're in the middle of it right now. Again, I really just think it's more of like a mindset thing than anything else. You know, you got to just stay fresh and not get bogged down. Like when you like getting bogged down, it's like you just have to be like, this is what it is, you know, like this session is the length that it is. It's going to take as long as it takes. And we're just going to get it right. We're going to do it till we get it right. And so for me, that's how I do it. Like, it's just one of those things where it's like, I'm just, it's the same sort of concept as what we were just talking about with sight reading. It's like, I decided that I'm going to be engaged all day with this session, no matter how tired I get. And for me, that works, you know, for me to say, I'm in it right now. I'm going to be in it until it's done. And then I'll be tired or whatever. You know, physically, I mean, it's just like being relaxed and not trying too hard. The harder you try in the studio, the, the worse it gets most of the time. The first take is usually the best. There might be mistakes, but it's usually the best in terms of energy. The second one is probably a little cleaner, a little less energy. And then at max, I would do a third take at max because that third take is going to be like all like, oh, we're doing this again. And it's like, but maybe if you're doing it for a specific reason, you can fix that one specific part. Sometimes it's amazing. That third take might be a really great take. But yeah, three takes max uh, for me. And uh, just staying, staying clear. Do you do any non-musical exercises to help get relaxed or in the zone? I mean, I like to stay relaxed. So taking deep breaths is, you know, something just like, and just kind of resetting in that way can be helpful for me. But um, nothing in particular. I don't prescribe to any like breathing exercises or anything like that. Just try to stay, stay relaxed. And I'm not, I don't have a hard time concentrating, you know, so I've practiced concentrating for a long time. So just to be able to zone in on something is a, a skill that has been slowly developed. And I think it's worth, worthwhile developing. How does doubling on higher 
instruments like trumpet slash soprano and altrombone affect your playing when compared to doubling lower instruments? Well, it's just a different experience on your shop. Some people don't have any trouble with it at all going higher or lower. Most people I find have more success going bigger than going smaller, like doubling on tuba and bass trombone rather than going up to trumpet. I'm not a master doubler. That's not like my strength. So I wouldn't say that I'm like the best person to answer exactly like the best techniques for doubling. But I think uh, the people that seem to have the most success are people that just view them as different instruments and try to keep everything separate. When you pick up the trumpet, you're playing the trumpet and you play the trumpet how you play the trumpet. You don't play the trumpet how you play the trombone. You have to pick it up and have that mindset. So you pick up the bass trombone and you play the bass trombone. You play the tuba. You don't play the tuba like a trombone player. You just you figure out this is a new embouchure. This is a new thing. Because when you try to relate it, interrelate it too much, I feel like the muscles get confused, whether you're going up, up in size or down in size. Do you have a specific approach for teaching beginning improv? Many thanks for the Q&A. Yeah, sure. For teaching beginning improvisation, we do this a lot with our... Um, nonprofit, the Institute for Creative Music, when we go into schools to work on beginning improvisation. I like to use tunes that are modal and tunes that are going to have success right away. Tunes where you can learn different parts right away, like a bass line and a melody and maybe some harmony parts, like maybe one chord or two chords. You could use like a kind of a like a vamp kind of tune or we used to use a lot of like some Radiohead tunes. Um, but to pick songs that are going to be successful right away. I don't like starting with the blues. Everyone likes to start with the blues, but it's the blues to me has a lot of the exceptions to the rules rather than the rules themselves um, in terms of how harmony works. So I definitely recommend doing something where it's going to allow the students to kind of just participate, allow students to um, all participate, not like one soloist at a time, but creating group improvisations, especially the younger and younger you go, the more important it is to engage them at all times. Um, so we do things like um, non-musical improvisation even, like thinking about making noises, like how do you sound like an elephant on your instrument? How, what other sounds can you make with your instrument? What does tension sound like on your instrument? What does release sound like on your instrument? Um, and going all the way to those kind of really basic musical examples and getting them excited about improvising. Because like the details of a scale to play and stuff are like pretty boring to the average student, I think, especially a younger student. Focus on the musical stuff, we focus on stuff that doesn't teach doesn't require that you have to teach a lot so like we'll do something in d minor because so it's like oh you can just play the f major scale um, and kind of focus on on that sort of modal improvisation uh, and then like in a jazz quote-unquote setting i'm gonna go like go to something like so what or you can just play modally and just think about the major scale as a starting point or something like down by the riverside where that's just got one and five and one and five and do you prefer recording your albums in one day or multiple one day i don't think it gets better I feel like if you have to work out the concept of the record, then it's, or if the concept of the record is to play and see what comes out, then you need more days. But when you have everything dialed in beforehand, just do it in a day. What are your thoughts on how teachers should try having positive reinforcement without trying to come across as rude? I've heard stories about people going off on students at UNT. It's generational, man. Everyone has their own te teaching style, you know. I think it's important to develop your own and to develop good rapport with the students so you can be honest with them. I don't like to yell at anybody because I don't think it's very effective. I had people yell at me and it wasn't effective. I had people be really, not rude, but just really cutting. And it kind of set me off on a path of like trying to prove something and it isn't a healthy one all the time. 
And so I try not to do that. Sometimes it happens and sometimes you just, sometimes it happens. You're just like, what are, what is going on? Like people are not taking this seriously enough. I mean, I don't know. There's not, I, I don't, I don't like to come off as rude, but sometimes you are, but sometimes I'm maybe too much the other way. And I try to, you know, soften the blow too much. I also know that that can be frustrating too to a student to not be super clear and direct. Um, but I don't really yell at anybody. I mean, there's some stories about other people not naming any names, but at institutions everywhere, you know, that go off on people. A lot of it comes from a place of passion, you know, like I can think of some of my teachers, like the only time they would get upset is because they, like you dedicated your life to this thing. You're trying to impart that knowledge onto some other people and they're not taking it as seriously as you take it. That can be a little frustrating and be a little like it hurts. You're like, man, like this is serious. Get it together. You know, that's how it feels. You know, it's like, man, like this is a hard thing you've decided to do and you're here and you're not putting in the work and it's it can be really frustrating. So I think that's where those situations probably come from is just that um, confrontation to me always comes from differing expectations. You know, people expect different things and then when they come together and they go like this, you know, you miss each other. Then that's when confrontation, that's when problems kind of arise. He just started summer break if you were 18 again and had all this time to shed how many hours a day would you put in as many as you can um, four to six is probably reasonable i would put in hour to two hours on fundamentals and hours to two hours on uh, transcribing and learning jazz vocabulary and playing jazz vocabulary and then an hour or two working on improvisation particularly just practicing as much as you can make sure you get out and play with other people because you can sometimes end up in the little like you can end up in a, a little trap of uh, just practice room stuff. So make sure you get out and try to play with other people, even if it's just like on a private session or get together with another person, one other person. Practice playing music because that's a separate practice. All right, what is the homework like for a jazz studies? Well, that depends on what classes you're enrolled in. He asked what the homework is like for a jazz studies slash performance major. Um, the thing that I always say to my performance majors is that you signed up, you came to college to be a performance trombone, jazz trombone major. If jazz trombone is not your primary focus, we're, we're kind of doing something wrong. So like your lesson, your improv class, your ensembles, like that to me is like where your focus should be at. And it should be at, you know, developing yourself as an artist and as a person and developing your skills there. So if you're not practicing every day, you're doing it wrong. The, the hierarchy should be that the, that stuff comes first, classes come last, right? And I'm not saying that because I think you should fail your classes. I think you should get an A in all your classes. I'm just saying in terms of priorities, if I'm gonna skimp on something and say like give a B effort instead of an A effort, I would recommend that you do that in your core class, not in your music class, because you came to school to be a music major to try to be a performer. So if you want to be a performer, that is like you got to be at the top of your game. So, But in terms of what it's like, it really depends on where you go to school. There's a lot higher expectation at Juilliard on the performance side than there is, um, you know, at a community college where probably your classes are the main focus and that the music stuff is not the main focus. So it just depends on the situation. It's the first time when you auditioned for Juilliard and didn't get in. What do you remember about your audition that stood out when you were thought I seriously need to improve on fill the blank. Uh, I, I needed to improve on vocabulary and knowledge of jazz and 
I realized I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing. I thought that jazz was just picking up songs and playing them. Like you listened to it and you just like learned through osmosis and that it just kind of happened sort of naturally. Yeah, like I didn't know tunes. I didn't know what things were. I didn't know records. I didn't, I just was like, I don't know anything. I realized that I didn't know anything. And I got into my freshman jazz theory class at Eastman. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's like theory and chords. And like, there were so many things I didn't know. I didn't even know what I didn't know. Um, I just thought like, oh, I was pretty good for high school kids. So I was going to get into Juilliard. And that was not the case. And you have to be serious about the music to get in there. You have to know what it's going on. You got to know records. You got to be able to play like your favorite players. You got to know songs. You got to not rely on sheet music. Uh, go into the details. The devil's always in the details, right? That's, I mean, that first time was just like a smack in the face. Like, hey, you need to get this together if you think you're going to come to this place, you know? I played, I remember this very specifically. I played Stardust in the key of D major. Why? Because it was in Jamie Abersold's book in the key of D. And they asked me, why are you playing um, Stardust in the, in the key of D major? And I said, oh, I don't know. That's what the music said. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I was like, I was confused. And then I realized I was just, I was just embarrassed because I was like, oh, I don't know what they're even talking about. I don't even know a recording of Stardust that I could point to what the key was. Like, and just having that level of knowledge, you know? Like, being good at your instrument in high school and being funneled towards music school is a different thing than, like, being really into the music. You know, that's something I talk about when people ask me, like, what do I look for in an incoming student? I say, well, somebody that listens to jazz and is interested in playing jazz, you know? And oftentimes, it's like there's people that play jazz in high school but they don't actually like jazz they just want to play not classical there was like kind of a light bulb like hey there's all this stuff to check out there was a master class two or three years before that with Winton Marsalis at Eastman that I got my butt handed to me at that as well and so those kind of experiences just was like you don't know what you're doing <laughs> you don't know what you're doing and then I was like you know what I'm gonna figure this out and I had four years and I figured it out I still, I didn't think I got in for my master's. I thought I failed that audition horribly. How does one work on improvisation? I understand fundamentals and language, but not how to practice improvisation. Uh, you practice improvisation by, you don't just turn on Jamie Result and just play. You have exercises that you use. So you get with a teacher that knows what to do and can kind of help guide you through this. So Get, or it doesn't even have to be a teacher, just another musician that can give you some some tidbits and like trade choruses, go back and forth. If there's hard spots, you've got to work on the sound. Like, do you know what the chord is? What scale goes with the chord? What's the arpeggio? Spell it up to the 13th. All of that stuff. Get the nuts and bolts. And then you got to start playing, say, make a vamp out of that one chord. Say it's F major 7 sharp 11. So if you don't know what that is, got to learn the arpeggio. You got to learn the scale that goes with it. You got to learn the sound. You got to learn to make melodies with it so that when you have it for only two beats or four beats, you can connect the dots really quickly. So I like to practice improvisation like I would practice any etude. So one bar at a time. Practice improvising on each sound, then practice connecting two sounds together. So maybe two chords together. Maybe it's a two, five, one. Maybe it's a five to one. Maybe it's modal changes, but you break it down one sound at a time. Get used to the change between Give yourself some rhythmic limitations. I like to say, okay, let's do note against note counterpoint. So one note, I'm going to pick one note per chord, and I'm trying to make a line that uh, makes sense. And then I might do half notes. Then I'm going to do quarter notes. And then I'm going to do eighth notes. 
one rhythm, just working on the harmony. So you give yourself limitations. That's how you practice improvisation. What kind of assignments do you give your students? All kinds of assignments. We work on classical trombone, jazz trombone, uh, writing songs, writing arrangements, bringing in transcriptions, uh, playing etudes, playing repertoire, learning standards, learning original compositions, learning compositions by the people that they like to listen to, um, doing deep dives. Uh, the next question is from Jack Courtright, and he uh, did a deep dive on some Dave Holland tunes, some Coltrane stuff. Um, so it's kind of a combination of fundamentals, trombone history, and what the student wants to learn. Do you think it's important for musicians to play with people from other generations, hiring sidemen who are far older slash younger than you, for example? I do think it's important, and I want to do it more. I wish I have done it more. In school, you get to play with the guys that are a lot older, and they can give you some good context about the music. But yeah, that's always something I wanted to do more of. So I do think it's important, and Jeremy Pelt in his... Uh, stories was talking about this exact comment yesterday instagram stories he was talking about this and had some good ideas around it but the, the part of the story that's missing is that there's not as many opportunities um to go and work as a side man for those people anymore like who are you gonna go play with like who tell me you know like i don't know who are the, the people that i know that play with those people have people in their band that are younger than them but they're two generations older than me I do think it's I do think it's a good experience though. I think it's important. I think it's how you learn. You learn on the bandstand. You learn from people that are have done it for longer. So is it essential? I don't know, but is it is it an important learning experience? For sure. You get to pick one trombonist for each decade since 1960. Who are you picking? Okay, so Jackson is clarifying his his question. He says active in the 60s. Okay, all right. So 60s, JJ and Curtis were both still alive. So I'm gonna say. Uh, JJ because then I can say Curtis in the 70s because uh, Curtis was still playing but JJ moved to LA to become a film composer during the 70s so I'll say JJ in the 60s I'll say Curtis in the 70s and then in the 80s and 90s I would say the 80s it's got to be got to be Steve Turay got to be Steve Turay but there's also Robin Eubanks kind of active in the 70s into the 80s in the 80s I mean 80s into 90s um, I think 2000s, I was super into, um, I, this is kind of like bridging the gap, like 90s into 2000s would be like Robin Eubanks and the Dave Holland Quintet. But then in 2000s also it was kind of like Wycliffe Gordon, for you know, especially for me. But Mo, he was most active, all his records, end of the 90s, into the 2000s. Teray and Robin Eubanks and Steve Davis, I'm kind of like, maybe we can make them seven years a piece instead of 10 years and kind of squeeze them all in into those decades. And then, you know, somebody like Wycliffe Gordon and the 2000s and then 2010s has got to be you know Deese and Jil Marshall, Marshall Jilks and Michael Deese and then this next generation this current uh decade 2020s I don't know it's yet yet to be seen yet to be seen this was the best performance you've ever seen I've seen a lot of performances that did not live up to the hype in my mind but I think that's what happens as you get more experience in a genre or in with music like the magic tends to leave uh it doesn't become it's not as like mysterious and magical anymore because you've heard it a lot or like you learn more about it or you learn the mechanics you see how the sausage is made kind of thing that's definitely been the case for me for a long time i don't know if there's best i can think of like certain musicians who the first time i heard them that like kind of made my mind explode and that was the first time i heard wycliffe gordon and that was like when I was in high school. And the first time I heard Maria Schneider's group was at Eastman and in the Eastman Theater. 
that was kind of mind-blowing. And then the first time I heard Lionel Luecas trio, great guitarist, he plays with Herbie Hancock now, but his trio came to the Rochester Jazz Festival and played. That was like mind-blowing. Yeah, all those things that come to mind. I don't know about best performance, though. You've been asked to assemble a trivia team made up of trombonists, yourself, and four others. Who is your trivia team? Normal trivia, not jazz slash trombone trivia. I feel like um, Ryan Keberly would be good at trivia. I don't actually know, though. I feel like Steve Davis probably knows a bunch of stuff. James Burton. Michael Deese knows a lot of like pop trivia. James and Mike go back and forth on like the pop culture stuff sometimes. So I picked Deese, James Burton. Oh, how many was it? Steve Davis, Keberly. Jilks. That was too many. Maybe we'll exclude me because I don't know anything. Uh, what type of music are you listening to now that's expanding your hearing? Anything from Africa, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm listening to a lot of what's coming out. Um, this morning I listened to Chris Potter has a new record out today. It's called Sunrise Reprise. So I don't know. I'm listening to a lot of the electronic slash jazz crossover stuff that's been coming out that's on a lot of the playlists on Spotify and just kind of seeing what's up with that and seeing if I resonate with it. I listened to a lot of Afro-Cuban music when I was in at Eastman because I was working in that scene a lot. I played mostly salsa gigs for like four years and that was super, super fun and super deep dive into people like Jimmy Bosch, like more modern people like Luis Bonilla and Conrad, of course, and there's people like Doug Beavers and a lot of people, but you know, Jimmy Bosch and um, Barry Rogers, sorry, uh, great trombonists in that style. Out of the, well, I guess they're like the New York salsa style, but um, anyway, so there's a whole like world to dive into there. But I kind of was into, into that world when I was working in that world more. So, and now I'm working more as a label person. So I'm kind of more interested in like seeing where th the music is and where it's heading and kind of what's happening. But um, I'm not super deep li listening to anything right now. Just kind of a lot of different stuff. You mentioned Arnold Schoenberg. I, I don't like to listen to that. That's interesting to study. And I think I use a lot of the tools that those composers use in my own composition, but I don't find it to be that aesthetically pleasing. I mean, I'm definitely a person that I will listen to music that challenges my sensibilities. But um, in terms of like, I'm going to turn something on, probably not Schoenberg, but definitely interesting. And I think the compositional uh, applications of that serialism movement are super interesting in jazz. And if you want to check that out more, I definitely recommend um, Miles Okazaki is really, really kind of deep into this kind of application of serialism to jazz, not in an overt way, but I, I can just, you can see from how he thinks about things that that's part of, part of his um, methodology there. Uh, he did a whole series last year about all different shapes and relating them to these serial pitch sets, which is super interesting to me and how it relates to harmony. Thanks for joining. We're going to wrap up the Q&A for today. So thanks for being here. Thanks for sticking with me. And, uh, we're, we're rolling right along. It's May 14th today, so hope you have an amazing uh, week, and we'll catch you next week.